Go ahead and take a seat. Uh, my name is Rob Collis. Uh, I'm on our pastoral team here at St. Pete's, and it's a delight to, to be preaching this morning. And if you are a guest with us, I want to give an extra special welcome to you today. Thank you for spending your Sunday with us. As a church, we've been going through a series called Encounters of Goodness. And at the heart of our faith, we believe that God is with us and that we can encounter him. Throughout the Bible, we find stories of people coming face to face with God. These encounters happen in all different kinds of ways, sometimes through a burning bush or a pillar of fire, other times through a dream or a whisper in the wind. But every single time, there's something surprising about these encounters. God reveals something surprising about who he is to these people. But as we hear these stories and as we consider this amazing idea that God can encounter us, amidst all the wonder and the amazement, the excitement that we could meet face-to-face with God, there's a question that's left dangling over our heads. Because so far in our series, we've been presupposing something. In fact, we take it as a given in the very title of our series. We're assuming that these encounters people have had with God have been good. And we're presupposing that the God that these people encounter in the Bible, we're assuming that this God is good. We're saying that God, the force behind the universe, the one who created it all, that is seen and unseen, we're saying he's good. And that's kind of a wild claim, right? So this morning, I want to examine that assumption. We're going to to address this question hanging over our heads. Is God good? Is God good? And to explore this, we're going to look at a story in the life of David. And as we look at David's story, I want us to explore and focus on how David encountered God and what this reveals about God. So how did David encounter God? And what does that reveal about God? Now, before we start, I should probably explain who this David guy is. Uh, David lived about 3,000 years ago, and he was the youngest son of a farmer. In fact, he had seven older brothers, which would have been brutal. Can you imagine having seven older brothers? I'm, I'm an older brother, so I know what I did to my younger brothers. It would have been brutal. And as the youngest, he often had to do the most menial and belittling of tasks, my, my little brother. When we first learned about David, he was out in the fields tending sheep. He was the youngest son, and he had to look after sheep. But God had a different plan for David. God sent a prophet named Samuel to anoint David to become the next ruler of Israel. And after a series of pretty crazy events with the former king, eventually David does become the king over all of Israel. And it's many years into that reign and rule that our story takes place today. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 17. If your Bible's on a phone... And I see a little like, illumination of your face today. I'm assuming you're looking at a Bible. You're not just texting while I'm preaching. Uh, and then everything will be on the screen behind me too. So in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, we read, After David was settled in his palace, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. Nathan replied to David, Whatever you have in mind... Do it, for God is with you. David had a desire. He was settled in his palace and he was established. His kingdom was at peace all throughout the land. And I can just kind of picture this. He must have been like on his balcony, just kind of surveying everything, just looking out like, oh, this is so nice. 
just looking around, and then he just, all of a sudden, out of the corner of his eye, he, he just sees something. Just catches his eye. He's like, oh, what's that? Now, in the time of ancient Israel, there's this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. It's that mysterious thing in Indiana Jones. And the Ark of the Covenant was a place of meeting between God and his people. The Ark had been created in the time of Moses, and wherever God led his people, they would take this Ark with them. And they kept it in a special tent called the Tabernacle, or the Tent of Meeting. And I'm sure they'd made repairs to this tent along the way, because it was an old tent. But as David was looking out from his palace, he, he sees this tent, the Tent of Meeting, this old tent that had traveled far and wide, and was looking dusty and ragged and old. He sees it, and he thinks to himself, why have we never done anything about this? I mean, God's presence is of so much more than just a dusty old tent. I live in a palace. Like, why, why can't we give something better to God here? So he went to this guy named, named Nathan, who, who was an important religious figure at the time. He was a leader of, of Israel. And he explained that he wanted to build a real house for God to dwell in. And Nathan was like, hey, that sounds great. Yeah, go for it. David had a desire to do something for God. Now, maybe you haven't wanted to build a temple for God. That would be kind of a lot. But perhaps you felt a desire to do something to feel closer to God in your own life. Maybe you've been following Jesus for a while, and, and you've been noticing that your faith feels kind of stagnant. Like your faith is a worn-down tent that could do with having some life breathed into it. And maybe you've thought, you know what? I'd actually really like for my faith to feel alive to me again. Or maybe you're exploring spirituality and you've been learning about Jesus. And, and as you have, you've had this desire beginning to grow inside of you. Kind of this stirring to engage with Jesus in some way. And maybe you've been thinking, actually, you know what? It would be kind of nice to, to engage with Jesus somehow, to encounter him. But that seems like I need to like, clean some stuff up in my life before I can do that. But it would be kind of nice if I could do that so I could actually have this encounter with him. Or maybe you're seeing the messiness of church and faith, the grit that comes with following Jesus together with others. Maybe you've seen that and you've just thought, this whole church thing is a mess. It's an old, worn-down tent, and I want to find a more comfortable place to live out my faith. We can have so many desires, and a lot of them are really understandable and seem really good. David wanted to do something good for God. And when he told this religious guy, Nathan, about it, Nathan said, you know what, that, that actually seems like a really good idea. But the thing is, God had a, a different idea. In verse 3, we read, But that night, the word of God came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, This is what the Lord says. You are not the one to build me a house to dwell in. God denies David his desire. God puts David in his place, and he's like, hold up, not, not so fast. David, you're not the one who's going to do that for me. That feels like a bit of a surprise, right? Like, David wanted to do something that seemed really good. It seemed like he was wanting to do something good and to build a beautiful place where people could come and worship God together. A place that was clean and well-built. A structure where God's presence could, be, could abide and to dwell and where his people could come and worship him freely and easily with comfort and peace. 
And God says, no, you're not going to do that for me. You are not the one, David, to do that for me. God had been content with the tent ever since the day he delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. He never asked for a permanent place to dwell. He never asked for a temple of bricks and stones. And when we consider that, this idea that God never wanted something permanent, he was content with a tent, it, it makes me stop and wonder about David's motive and where it came from. It makes me wonder if maybe his motivation for building a temple came more from his culture around him than from the heart of God itself. For whatever reason, God denies David his desire. But, but more than that, he, he kind of puts David in his place. In verse 7, he says, Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. God says, David, don't you remember? I put you here. I, I chose you. God chose David in his humble and lowly estate. David was the youngest son of a rural family, a shepherd family. God chose a weak, small, poor boy of no fortune and chose him to become the leader of his people Israel. It's like God saying, you don't need to provide for me. I can provide for myself, thank you very much. After all, I provided for you. I put you here. That feels like a bit of a confusing turn, doesn't it, in this whole conversation. God's denied David his desire, but, but more than that, he kind of changes the conversation to this weird, I don't need that from you, David. I don't need you to do that. And as I reflect on that, it, it makes me wonder, could it be that some of my own desires, some of our desires to replace those worn-down tents in our own lives, could it be that God sees those desires and maybe he says, no, actually, I don't need you to do that for me. You see, God was perfectly content to meet with his people in that old ragged tent. The old tent that had traveled far and wide and was looking dusty and ragged and old. God didn't need the tent to change. He didn't need the tent to change in order to meet with his people in that place. He could still meet with people in the old worn-down tent. That's where he chose to meet his people. And quite often it's in the old worn-down tents in our lives, those places where God's looking to encounter us too. God has this tendency to meet us in our broken places, our worn-down tents and messy rooms. And if we're honest, that's actually where we need God to show up in our lives, isn't it? One of the broken places where God keeps encountering me in my life a lot is in the feeling of belonging and the sense of home. And what does that mean? My family moved to another country when I was 11. And I always felt, had this feeling that I didn't quite belong. And now I'm living in a third country, just to add to the confusion in my life and why my accent's kind of weird. And... Like, I, I know in Vancouver it's a pretty common story for people not to be from here, so I guess I'm in good company now. But that doesn't really help that ache in my heart. I've long had this ache inside of me 
about what does it mean to feel like I belong and to feel at home. And God is still having to minister to me in that ache and in that pain. I wonder, what's the old tent in your life where God can come and encounter you? God doesn't need us to clean up the worn-down tents before he can come and encounter us. He doesn't need a, a polished facade. David wanted to clean things up, to provide a house fit for the presence of the Lord. David wanted to put God in, in a nice, tidy temple, a box, a place where God could fit nicely in his life. But God refused. God refused because, you see, God wanted, God wanted something else. God desired something else for David. And we'll come back to what God desired in just a moment. But before we get there, I want to pause and reflect a little bit on how David encountered God in this story. Because as we've been walking through our series over the last few weeks, we've seen that when people have encountered God, they typically have had this direct face-to-face encounter with him. And actually, it's usually been in a pretty shocking and supernatural way, too. A few weeks back, we looked at Jacob, and we saw that Jacob encountered God in a dream. Moses then encountered God in a burning bush and was led by a pillar of fire. Last week, we heard about Mary, who encountered two angels, which would have been crazy, sitting on the, the tomb where Jesus had been laid. And then just to top that off, because that wasn't supernatural enough, then the resurrected Jesus shows up and she has a conversation with him. Visions, fiery manifestations, conversations with the resurrected Jesus. Those are all profound. Incredible, and they're awe inspiring encounters. But that wasn't what David's encounter looked like, was it? David didn't have a direct face to face encounter. And considering all those other encounters, David's encounter was kind of surprising. You see, David's encounter with God was through someone else, it was through an interaction and a conversation with a prophet. Even just saying that, like David encountered God through a prophet, that, that's also kind of a weird thing, right? I mean, ob- objectively, the other encounters are also weird, they're supernatural. But we can at least chalk that up to some sort of private individual experience. But if I haven't had a God dream for myself, or if I haven't talked with the resurrected Jesus, or if I haven't had a pillar of fire descend from the heavens and come down to lead me, or have some other supernatural event happen in my life, like my Cheerios miraculously telling me what to do, which, by the way, a former pastor of mine pointed this out to me. Whenever I've looked at my Cheerios, they just say, ooh. (laughs) Yeah. If I haven't had the big, crazy encounter, does that mean that I should go out hunting for a prophet now to hear what God has to say to me? Uh, I want to try and take a moment to demystify what it means to have an encounter with God. Because there's some challenges here for us in seeking to encounter God in our own lives. And there's three challenges in particular that I just want to name for us right now. The first challenge is this. It's the prevailing belief in individual autonomy. The prevailing belief in individual autonomy. That's a bit of a mouthful. But but what I mean by that is that it's really easy for us to believe that our spiritual life is a private matter. And that we can pursue it fully on our own. That we don't need anyone else in our lives in order for us to encounter God for ourselves. And it's this individual autonomy idea that's actually behind that 
idea that you've probably heard at some point about how you can be spiritual but not religious. That I can explore spirituality without needing other people and other structures around me. And things we can certainly have private moments with God. But this whole faith, like life of faith thing, the Christian spirituality, it's not something we can do on our own. We actually need one another in order to follow Jesus together. And so much of Jesus' own teaching presupposes that we are following him with other people. Jesus has all these commands. He gives us these, these teachings about one another. And you can't follow those. You can't do those unless there are other people in your life that you're following Jesus with alongside of you. And in fact, that's actually one of our values as a church. Chandler mentioned it earlier, the value of interdependence. David needed Nathan, and we need each other, because we often encounter God through other people, and we each play an important part of the body of Christ. So one challenge to encountering God in our own lives is, is this belief in individual autonomy. But we need each other to follow Jesus and to encounter God for ourselves. We need each other to follow Jesus. A second challenge to encountering God in our own lives is that so much of our life is driven by a desire to be efficient and effective. Efficiency and effectiveness govern so much of our world, from how we work to how we play to how we cook and to how we eat. We want to to optimize how we use our time so we can get the greatest return on our investment, maximizing our yields to have the most effective results. And it's really common for efficiency and effectiveness to creep into our spiritual lives. We want to be efficient with how we spend and use our time. And so we condense our times with God all packed into this little private devotional moment, which we might have some days in the mornings. Or we seek out the most effective way to be a Christian and we look to the most successful programs, the churches which are doing it right and the books that are making a difference, those programs which seem to work and are successful. But when we try to have an efficient spirituality, We're trying to be the ones in control of how we engage with God. Like David, we're trying to build a box, a house for God, determining the size of the box to keep him in. And yes, our time is limited. But if God is really God, then he's the one who should be in control. When we try to have an effective spirituality, we're trying to judge the success of what God is doing in our own hearts and lives. And to do that, we have to compare ourselves to somebody else and what God's doing in someone else's hearts and lives. And we're starting to judge ourselves and others. See, success is a really dangerous word in the Christian life. It doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible. You'll never hear anything in Scripture about successful ministry or successful spirituality. But when we make effectiveness and success the goal, we we place ourselves in God's seat as judge. And we judge ourselves and we judge others to do the same. And who are we to be judging God and what he's doing in our lives and the lives of others? David didn't want to encounter God in an old tent. He wanted something shiny and glamorous and new. We need to forsake that dichotomy of efficient and effective We need to get rid of that dichotomy in our spiritual lives for the sake of encountering. That's our second challenge. And quickly, our third challenge to encountering God is the challenge of our own expectations. We need to examine our own expectations of what it means to encounter God in our lives. 
Encounter doesn't equal ecstasy, although sometimes it can feel like that. And ecstasy doesn't equal encounter. So much of our cultural expectations are built upon this premise of escaping the tedium of the ordinary. And we do that by pursuing those extraordinary things, seeking out excitement in our lives. We seek experiences to escape from the mundane. But Jesus delights in the ordinary. And one of the most beautiful realities of the Christian faith is that God is very happy and content to be present in the mundane and the dull. In fact, the incarnation of Jesus, when Jesus came to earth and walked among us as a fully human being, it was the embodied presence of God walking through earth as a human. And he walked without pretense and he walked without hurry. Jesus delights in the ordinary. And he encounters us in the everyday. Jesus delights in my Cheerios just saying, ooh. Because Jesus reveals the beauty of what is right before us. And he invites us to discover the wonder of who he is and the beauty of this world that he has made without the need for us to escape it. So if we want to encounter God in our own lives, it means that we can't pursue God in our own. We need others. We need to let God be in control and allow him to judge the inner workings of our own hearts and lives. And we have to let go of using spirituality as an escape from the world around us and allow God to encounter us in the ordinary, exactly where we are right now. David's encounter with God happened in a surprising way. David encountered God through Nathan. He encountered God in in the presence of a worn-down, dust-ridden tent. He encountered God in the midst of a conversation. And God delights in meeting you and me in our worn-down, dust-ridden tents. In delights in meeting us in our ordinary places too. God responded to David in his desire to build him a house. And he responded through Nathan. And it wasn't an encounter face-to-face. It was an encounter in the face of another. And David was surprised to hear God hit the brakes in his plans to replace the tent of meeting. But he was even more surprised and amazed to hear what God desired to do instead. In verse seven, in verse eight, excuse me, we read, "Now I will make your name like the names of the greatest men on earth. I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed." I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. David wanted to build a place, a house for God to dwell in. He wanted a permanent home where God could dwell and be established and worshipped. But God desired the opposite. And he turns this whole situation around. God says, no, actually, I'm going to do that for you. I'm going to provide a place for my people to be rooted and established. I'm going to give my people a place to belong and to call home, a place where they can dwell secure. And you know what, David? Actually, I'm going to build a house for you. You're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. He goes on to say in verse 11, when your days are over and you go to be with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. 
The house of God would build, the house God would build for David was a place of belonging for him and his descendants. David's palace had already been built, though, so that's actually not what God was talking about. God was guaranteeing and promising to establish the kingdom under David's reign. And while David's son, Solomon, would go on to build a temple in Jerusalem for God to dwell in, that temple would ultimately be destroyed. So clearly that didn't work out very well. But God was making an immediate promise to David, yes, about Solomon, but he was ultimately making an even greater promise. One of David's own ancestors would reign on an eternal throne. And he would reign over a kingdom that would give everyone an eternal home. In this story, David comes to God with his plans. He tries to make God fit into this box, this temple. But the goodness of God cannot be contained inside of a temple. It's too great. It's too extravagant. God reveals his goodness through his response to David's desire. The extravagant goodness of God isn't just for David, it's for us too. That promise was made to David, yes, but it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus, a descendant of David, is the one who built the house for the Lord. God was building his house. And at the end of the day, God built his own house. And he's done it in the hearts and lives of everyone who trusts in Jesus. Because when we trust in Jesus, we belong to him. And he comes and he makes his home in us. He makes our home in him. That means that in Jesus, I belong to Jesus. I have a home, eternal and secure. It's not dependent upon a place or a nation. My, my home is in the presence of God. The assurance of his presence is the gentle balm to the ache in my heart that longs to belong. You see, Jesus meets us in our worn down tents, our broken places. He encounters us in the, those places of longing and desire. He comes to us and he says, you, you don't need to clean that up for me. You don't need to clean that up for me. You don't need to fix that for me in order for me to encounter you. You don't need to do that for me. But I want to do something for you. My goodness can't be contained to the box you want to put me in. My desire is to meet you here in this worn down tent and to build a house for you. Is God good? What we see here in this encounter with David is, is yes, he is good. He's actually, he's exceedingly good. God reveals his goodness through his response to David's desire. God wanted something so much greater than a little clean house to dwell in. God wanted to have his goodness explode in David's life. He wanted his goodness to wash over everyone from the old worn down tent that tabernacle, that tent of meeting. And in awe and wonder, David hears this and he goes into that old worn down tent, that tent that had traveled far and wide and was looking dusty and ragged and old. He goes into that tent and in verse 16 we read, then King David went in and sat down before the Lord. And he said, who am I, Lord God, and what is my family? that you have brought me this far. The extravagant goodness of God and his goodness, it's, it's exceedingly good. And it's not just for David. It's for you too. God is exceedingly good and his goodness is for you. And 
He's exceedingly good towards you. His goodness is far greater than you could have ever dared to hope. Far greater than David could have ever dared to hope. Far greater than I could have ever dared to hope. And so will you come and meet God in that tent? That place that's ragged and worn down. Will you come like David and go into that tent and sit down before the Lord? Will you let him wash over you with his goodness? Will you let him wash over you with his love? Will you let him encounter you with his goodness today? Let's pray.